Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Elise Gallus, and today I'm excited to bring you another recording from a virtual gospel gathering we hosted during the COVID lockdowns, this time with N.T. Wright. In this session, Wright will be diving into John 20 and talking about how this scripture connects to the time we were in during the talk with the pandemic. Now, even though we're out of that particular season now, Dr. Wright has some important words to share about the biblical picture of hope, renewal, and lament. You'll hear from local pastor Rick McKinley, who will introduce him, and towards the end of this episode, there will be some Q&A. So let's dive into part one of N.T. Wright's April 2020 talk, New Creation Reality. We do apologize in advance for some minor sound issues that occurred during the original Zoom. Well, thank you, everybody. It's uh, great to be here, and it's great to be here, obviously, with Professor N.T. Wright. We know you like to go by Tom, and so we'll refer to you as Tom, but we have uh, no great need to introduce him. He is such a prolific writer and has helped so many of us. I had the privilege of meeting Tom uh, years ago. I don't even know if you remember this. Back at Wheaton, there was a small gathering of people there, and I remember you were asking me uh, about about books and if I'd written any books and I was so sure you were going to ask me uh, about blue like jazz. And I was so depressed about that. Uh, the, the, the people listening will understand, but you didn't, you were talking about something that I had written. And I remember just being so uh, struck by your humility, uh, how down to earth you are and just what a true, churchman and and sort of pastors theologian you are and so we're so grateful to have you and uh you won't be able to hear their applause but uh in a very virtual way please welcome tom wright it's great to be with you all and it's a little weird because i'm sitting here in my study in oxford in england and it's uh, nearly time for supper and you're there in various parts of the states and elsewhere and uh, that's that's all very strange. I'm just going to um, turn the volume down on my phone, which is the only way I can hear the audio. There we are. So I've been asked to talk to you about new creation, which is just an amazing theme. And I'm delighted to be able to do that um, and to, to share with you some reflections on two key Bible passages. And in the first session, I'm going to be looking particularly at the 20th chapter of John's Gospel. And then in the second one, at the eighth chapter of Romans, uh, those two chapters have long been favorites of mine. And when this, uh, the, this session was being set up, it was suggested to me that I might take those as the key focal points for talking about new creation in Scripture. And also then for framing the questions about what's going on at the moment. Uh, my wife and I are in lockdown here in our little house in Oxford. We're allowed out for brief exercises or quick trips to the food shops. But mostly we, like everybody else in England, is told to stay home. And I guess that's so for most, if not all of you as well. 
and all sorts of questions come up at this point. Just, just what's going on? What is God doing? What are we supposed to be doing as God's people in the middle of all of this? And I, I was struck when I was asked to speak on, on John 20 by the fact that in the middle of John 20, the paragraph that begins at verse 19, it has the disciples, Jesus' disciples, um, hiding behind locked doors because they're afraid. And that's exactly where most people in my country, millions of people are right now. They're quite literally inside their houses with the doors shut. And if anyone comes to the door, they're afraid that this person may be bringing them infection or whatever it is. And if we venture out, everybody looks at everybody else on the street and, and steers well away from them in case they may be dangerous. They may be carrying the infection. This, this is a very fearful time. And into that time comes this extraordinary word of John 20, where Jesus himself comes and stands in the middle. And that's, of course, what happens again and again in the Gospels. In Mark's Gospel, you recall the disciples on the boat in the storm when Jesus is asleep. And then in Mark 4, uh, Jesus wakes up and stills the storm. Or in Mark 6, when they're crossing the lake and the storm gets up and Jesus comes walking on the water and suddenly they take him into the boat and then they get where they're going. And this pattern seems to be characteristic. And I suppose it ought to be our focus of prayer, really, through these days, and especially as we come to uh, Good Friday and Easter Day on Sunday. The idea that here are we, we're fearful, we're shut in like the disciples, um, or, or we, we just feel afraid. Nameless fears rise up. What's going on? What's happening in my country? What's happening to my family? What's happening in the world as a whole? And our prayer should be that Jesus will come and stand in the midst and say, as he did on that occasion, peace be with you. And we'll, we'll come we'll come back to that. But I want to frame that within the larger biblical picture of hope and the way that it works. And I find, though it seems to me now very obvious in Scripture, I'm aware from much of what I was taught growing up, that this is not the way that everyone has looked at the Bible. But in the Old Testament, again and again, we have great pictures of cosmic renewal. Some of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, they speak of uh, the, the trees in the field and the seas and the floods and the mountains and the hills and the animals all celebrating because God is going to come and it says, judge the world. And that word judge doesn't mean condemn it. It means God is going to come and put everything right. These are hymns of praise because God is the putting right God. He's the God who says, I'm going to make it all right. And there's a kind of a sigh of relief about those Psalms. Everybody knows that things are in a mess. God has promised that he's going to come and put it all right. And in Isaiah 11, we have that wonderful picture of creation put right, everything straight again, with the animals all living in harmony and humans living in harmony with harmony with the natural order. And in Psalm 72, we have a picture which is very like what you find in Isaiah 11, that eventually the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then in Isaiah 55, you have that wonderful picture of new creation, where instead of the thorn will come up beautiful flowering shrubs, which is a kind of a reversal of Genesis 3 and a reversal of the vineyard gone wild in Isaiah 5. God is going to put it all right. That is the great promise. And the New Testament picks that promise up and sees it focused in Jesus 
And then has that forward look that we get in Romans 8, which we'll get into in the second part of this evening, and then also in 1 Corinthians 15, and also then in Revelation 21 and 22, a picture of God putting the whole world right. And we long for that. And at a time like this, when everything seems to be going wrong in the world, we long for it even more explicitly. And it's good if you're preaching on Easter Day, as some of you listening no doubt will be, to make that the focus, that God is going to put everything right. This world is going to be God's world and visibly so, full of his glory. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God's plan from the beginning was to sum up everything in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, not to separate heaven from earth, but to join them together forever. That's the promise. And then the Easter event, Jesus being raised from the dead, is that promise brought right into the middle of history in the case of Jesus himself, that Jesus' own body, his own person, becomes the first fruits, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. What God is going to do for the whole creation in the end, he did, close up and personal for Jesus three days after his crucifixion. And that is both the beginning of the new creation and the energy with which new creation is then implemented. Because then, as we know, after his resurrection, Jesus breathes on his followers there in John 20 and says, receive the spirit. And Paul, talking about the spirit in Romans 8 and elsewhere, sees the spirit as the spirit of Jesus himself in the energy and power of the resurrection. So that what we then, indwelt by the Spirit, are to do and be in the present time is to be people in whom and through whom real advanced signs of new creation come to birth. So, my friends, that's the biblical picture. We live between the beginning of the new creation with Jesus' resurrection and the final new creation when Jesus comes again to make all things new. But we are people who are ourselves put right through the gospel so that we can be part of God's putting right project for his world. Those are the coordinates, if you like. And what does the New Testament say about what goes on in between those two? Well, in John's gospel, John chapter 16, Jesus says, in the world, you will have trouble. He doesn't say, because you're my people, you will never have trouble. I'll leave you aside from all that. The world will have trouble, but you'll be okay. He says, no, in the world, you will have tribulation, trouble. There will be distress. And in Matthew 24, and its parallels in Mark and Luke, Jesus warns that there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and plagues and goodness knows what. And Jesus says, that's the norm. That's what you're to expect. You see, I have a feeling that part of our problem here is the sort of simplistic view which says, because we're Christians, everything ought really to be all right. So if suddenly there's a plague and people we know and love are dying or getting seriously sick, then something's gone terribly wrong. Maybe somebody emailed me the other day and said that the people were preaching and saying, this is a sign of the end times. Well, in my view, reading the New Testament, Jesus may return at any time. And we're told that Jesus himself didn't know when the final end would be. He says only the Father knows that. 
So when we see the, the, the strange things that happen in the world, we're not to say, ah, now we can calculate a chronology from this. That's not the point. In fact, it's a way of missing the point. And likewise, it's always too simplistic just to say, oh, this is a call for us to repent. Again, somebody emailed me the other day and said, don't you realize this plague is is God's way of calling us to repent? Well, maybe that's part of it. But God is always calling his people to repent. When we pray the Lord's Prayer every day, we say, forgive us our trespasses. And we all need to go on praying that. And to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as in heaven is not, oh, now that we can see these signs, we know it's about to appear. This is our daily prayer. We ought always be ready for the final kingdom. We are already people of the kingdom in the present. We ought always to be ready for the final kingdom and always to be in, in a penitent state. Sorry for our sins. So this is nothing new. The problem, I think, is that for the last two or three hundred years, we in the Western churches have picked up from the Enlightenment philosophy, which is so deep in our bloodstream, particularly in Britain and Europe and North America, uh, that we think that actually the church, like the world, has just been gradually um, getting along and God is doing what he's doing and everything is supposed to be getting better, according to the Enlightenment philosophy. And then suddenly bad things happen and we go shock horror. We didn't know the world was going to be like that because many Christians, as one of the theologians this last generation has said, have bought into a system which he called moral therapeutic deism. That we believe in a God who is rather distant, who has set this world running and who wants us to behave ourselves more or less and then will sort things out for us. And if bad things are threatening, God will make it okay. Well, my friends, if we didn't know that before, we ought to know now, as we have had many signs of in my lifetime, moments like um, September the 11th, nearly 20 years ago now, um, calling into question the idea of God as the celestial CEO pressing the buttons in the head office and just making things happen the way he wants it. So that whatever happens, we as Christians ought to be able to look at the world and say, oh, yes, I can see what God is doing here. Um, he wants to do this and this and that and that. And he's sending us this message and that message. And I read the New Testament and I say, no, it's just not like that. This, I think, is part of the reason why the new atheists, so-called, have been so powerful, because some Christians have tried to live like that. And then things have happened in the world and people have just said, no, we can't be doing with a God like that. But was that the right view of God in the first place? John's gospel emphatically says, no, that was never the right way. Think of how John's gospel starts. In the beginning was the word and then the word became flesh and tabernacled in our midst. He pitched his tent. This is an image from uh, the end of the book of Exodus of the tabernacle being built and God coming to live in the midst of his people. And John says, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him, has made him known. You see, we often faced with puzzles in our world. We look to a God who is the maker and ruler of the world, and we try to explain things ourselves. And John says, no, you can't do that. It's Jesus who gives the explanation. It's only when you look at Jesus that you discover who the true God is and what the cosmic story is that's going on in which we are all caught up. But as I read John's gospel, I don't see this 
moral therapeutic deist God, I see Jesus struggling and wrestling with opposition, with satanic opposition, with difficult issues and people misunderstanding him. And I see Jesus in John chapter 12 saying, now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, now is my soul troubled because Jesus knows he has to go to the cross. This is the Johannine equivalent of the Gethsemane moment in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And then Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. In other words, Jesus knows that what he has to do in going to the cross is to defeat the dark power that has forced itself on God's world and has made God's world subject to corruption and decay and death and all that leads to it, particularly, of course, human sin. And as the story unwinds, John, having told us that that's what Jesus was going to do, then shows us how it's actually going to work out by Jesus taking the place of sinners so that the power that has caused sin in the first place may be defeated. But on the way, when we wonder what does it look like when this God comes to do the work of new creation, we then see not Jesus striding through the world, making everything all right by snapping his fingers here and there. Of course, he heals people. He brings new life. But then strange things happen. In John 11, Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick and Jesus stays where he is and prays for Lazarus. And then he goes to Bethany and Jesus weeps at the tomb of his friend. And somehow this is an art we have to relearn. It won't do to say Jesus knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why did he bother to weep? We are at the moment in the position where we are called to share the lament of Jesus at the tomb of his friend. You will know, and I know people who are in the hospital right now receiving emergency room treatment. As I speak to you, the prime minister of my country, Boris Johnson, is in uh, the, the, the inner part of the hospital being cared for because he's got this virus pretty badly. Whatever is going to happen, it won't do for us as Christians to say, oh, well, that's all right. God will do whatever he's going to do. The first call is to lament. That's one of the most important things we need to learn. Not to say I've got a solution, not even to say God's got a solution and I know what it is. Certainly not to say, oh, I know what God wants to tell us through this and then to trot out one of the agendas that we might have had all along anyway. Rather to lament, to be prepared to stay with Jesus at the tomb of his friend, and only then to go with him and see what happens when he says, Lazarus, come out. But then as well, it doesn't stop there, because at the very moment when you might have thought Jesus would be gathering his friends and saying, right, this is the moment. I want you to all be strong and link arms, literally or metaphorically, and we're going to see this thing through. Instead, in John 13, what does he do? He kneels down. And one by one, he washes their feet. And John, throughout his whole gospel, is saying, just look at Jesus and think, this is the God, the God who is the creator, the God of generous love, the God who is giving his own life so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be healed. Jesus tears at the grave of Lazarus, Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet, these tell us more than we can easily take in, I think, 
about who God actually is. So that when we then move forwards in the story and see Jesus confronting Pontius Pilate in chapters 18 and 19 and arguing with Pilate about kingdom and truth and power, and Pilate has really no idea what Jesus is talking about because his kind of worldly empire can't cope with what Jesus is saying, then and then only do we realize who the true God really is. There is a power There is a being in charge. Yes, Jesus is the sovereign one, even when he's arguing with Pilate, even though Pilate then puts him to death. This is the death that Jesus knows that he has had to go and accomplish in order to defeat the power of the dark enemy. New creation then happens, not because God is the celestial CEO who can sweep all before him and say, let's just get rid of that trash and I'm just going to do the new thing. New creation happens because God comes in the person of his son, in the the weeping person of his son, in the foot washing person of his son, in the arguing with the powers that be person of his son. And then He takes the weight of the world's evil upon himself. We don't need to rush through that. Indeed, as we come tomorrow to what in my tradition we call Maundy Thursday and then the day after uh, to Good Friday, it would be good to spend some time with John 11 and John 13 and John 18 and 19 before we just dash ahead to Easter Day to say if new creation is going to come, It's going to come through us as God's faithful, grieving, lamenting people, holding the pain of the world within the tears of Jesus, within the foot washing of Jesus, within the arguing with the powers that be of Jesus. And only then do we move forward into John chapter 20, when the doors were locked for fear, as our doors are locked for fear today. So then John 20 itself, we finally get there. This is a scene to ponder, to pray through. And again, perhaps as a prayer exercise for yourselves and your congregations and your families and your friends over the Easter day itself and in the coming weeks. Because, as I've said more than once, uh, Easter day should not be a single day of celebration. It ought to be the beginning of a 40 day celebration. Some of us keep Uh, Lent, the time of preparation, that's 40 days. Easter ought to be at least 40, actually 50 days, all the way to Ascension Day, when Jesus is publicly crowned as king. But what is John 20 all about? It's about how Jesus comes into the middle, first of a world of tears, then of a world of fears, and then of a world of doubt. Mary is in tears at the tomb, and Jesus comes and meets her. Mary doesn't understand who he is. She thinks he's the gardener, which is actually a good mistake to make, because in the great scheme of John's gospel, it's all about creation. It's all about Genesis and new Genesis. If you look at the beginning of John 20, you'll see it starts in the dark, and then there is light, just like at the beginning of Genesis. And then we have people running to and fro. New creation is suddenly springing to life. Some of you will know C.S. Lewis's book, The Magician's Nephew. One of my grandchildren was having it read the other day. That lovely passage about suddenly the new world springing to life as Aslan sings it into being. That's what's going on in John 20. And when Peter and John go into the tomb, 
there is an angel, one at one end and one at the other end of where Jesus' body had lain. And as a wise theologian pointed out not long ago, this reminds us in biblical imagery of the mercy seat, the place in the inner shrine of the tabernacle or the temple where God had promised to meet with his people and meet with them in grace. And the presence of the angels in the tomb like that say that Jesus himself has been and is the place where and the means by which God has met with his people and has met with them in grace. And so Mary discovers that this actually is Jesus after all. She she stumbles and, and says the wrong thing. But Jesus then says, Mary, I have a job for you. It's not just your tears are going to be dried. You are going to be the first one to tell the others that not only am I alive again, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary is the first person to give the gospel message, which is the foundation, by the way, of all Christian ministry, that the crucified Jesus is alive and is becoming the king of the world, the crowned king of the world. And then we get in John 20 verses 19 through 25, we get the scene in the upper room when the disciples are there fearful with the doors locked because they're afraid of of the people outside who might be coming after them next. And Jesus comes and stands in the midst and says, peace be with you. Not a static peace either, not just, okay, calm down, that's all right. It's a missionary peace. Peace be with you as the Father sent me, so I send you. You are not only to be people enfolded by God's peace, and don't we need that right now in the world as a whole, but to be instruments and agents of peace. Mary is to be the one who is the instrument of the gospel. The disciples in the upper room, perhaps including Mary, we don't know, are to be the ones who are agents and instruments of peace. And he shows them his hands and his side. The wounds that love has borne are the things which have dealt with the power of evil so that now new creation can begin. That's what John 20 is all about. And that's why Jesus breathes on his followers and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then that strange word about forgiving sin and retaining sin. They are to be, as in John 16, people who hold the world to account, who speak the truth to power like Jesus had spoken it to Pontius Pilate. Jesus comes then into a world of tears, into a world of fears, and also with Thomas into a world of doubt. Thomas says, this doesn't fit my worldview. I can't really believe it. I think you're all just making it up. And Jesus comes and says, well, Thomas, be my guest. Put your hand here and put it into my side. Put your finger here. Put it into the mark of the nails. And Thomas, we're not told actually he does touch, but Thomas simply says, my Lord and my God. Jesus comes into the midst. We today live in that world of tears, of fears and of doubt. And we are commissioned in the power of the spirit to be people in whom and through whom the message can then go out. That new creation has begun. We don't have to wait. It isn't just an it is an advanced sign, but it isn't just a distant signpost. It's a reality. 
Jesus' resurrection body is the beginning of new creation and the outpoured spirit is the energy which takes that beginning and makes it a reality. So that when we do the acts of kindness and love, when we go and tell people about the new creation and show them what it means in our communities, in setting up food banks, in being with the poor and the people who live on the margin and all the rest of it. And you know this stuff as well as I do. But when we do that, we are not just oiling the wheels of a machine that's one day going to go off a cliff because the real thing is we need to leave this world and go to heaven instead. No, we are bringing signs of God's new creation to birth in the midst of this weary old earth. That's what in the early church, the Christians, the followers of Jesus did when a plague would strike a city in ancient Turkey, say, then often the doctors and the well-to-do people would get out of town and run and flee to the hills. But the Christians would stay and would nurse people. And sometimes they would get sick and die themselves. But when it was all over, people would say, what was that about? Why were you doing that? We weren't part of your family, your tribe, your kin. And they would say, it's because we follow Jesus. And because in the power of his resurrection, we believe in new life. We believe that our God gives new life lavishly, liberally to all. And then the tailpiece of the story is, of course, with Peter. Because, yes, there is penitence woven into this story as well. Jesus doesn't tell Mary, oh, all this has happened as a sign you should repent. He doesn't say that to them in the upper room. He doesn't even actually say it to Thomas when he confronts him and his doubts. But with Peter, there has been something specific. Three times Peter has denied even knowing Jesus. Three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's response, where he can't quite use the same word that Jesus uses, is, yes, Lord, you know, I'm your friend. And on the third occasion, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, are you my friend? And I think what he's saying is, okay, Peter, if that's where you are, that's where we'll start. And that's a message again, which so many of us need again and again. But you see, the New Testament is much more complicated and interesting and three-dimensional than people often imagine, because it is all about new creation. And learning how to express in the presence of Jesus the lament that we all have, and not to hurry through it, but genuinely to lament. And that's one of the reasons we have the Psalms and the Book of Lamentations to help us do that learning how to express our fears. We we hardly even dare go out of the house. Learning how to express all the other nameless fears that hover around us and often cripple our imaginations. Learning how to express our doubts. I'm really not sure that I know what God is doing here. Well, maybe that's an okay place to be. We need then to say that to Jesus and to express it before Jesus and to wait for his word, not just of consolation, but of commission. Jesus is indeed now in charge. But as he says in the Sermon on the Mount, what it means when he's in charge is that he gives to his people the privilege of being the mourners and the brokenhearted and the peacemakers and the pure in heart, the people through whom God's kingdom will be manifest, the kingdom which will be complete when Jesus comes again, but which has already been launched when Jesus rose from the dead. There, my friends, that's what I wanted to say about John 20 and a bit about John 21. We are now going to go somehow, if the technology will allow us, into some questions. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, Tom. That was uh, so good. And I can see that so many people are are contributing their questions right now. But um, as it's my privilege to be joined by Renji. Yes, yes, that's good. Marianne, uh, can you hear me okay, Tom? Yes, I, 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 I can hear. Okay. Uh, one of the questions that I want to start with comes from an eight-year-old girl named Nora, uh, who is a theologian in training. And she, she wrote out these questions and said, uh, this is for mom, dad, or Pastor Rick. And so I thought, who better to ask than you? And the question was, did God create the coronavirus? And if so, what is God doing in the world to help with it? There is a great mystery there. And I don't pretend to have any easy solution to that. Because as we find again and again in Scripture, evil seems to be an intruder in God's world. God did not make a world in order to fool us into thinking that all the beauty and joy of the world was was going to be all right. And there was, you know, and, and in fact, God had a, a nasty plan to make it un, unpleasant for us after all. Somehow, and there are several different biblical images for this, evil has intruded into God's good creation. And that has many dimensions which we don't understand. And actually, I don't think we're meant to understand because evil doesn't have a valid place in God's world. It is, in the technical term, absurd. It doesn't belong. It's as if you've put together a model of a car or something, and then there's this odd bit which is lying on the sidewalk, and you say, what's that? And somebody says, actually, that doesn't belong in that car. And if you try and put it in the car, you'll mess the whole thing up. And if you try and provide an explanation for evil and say, oh, yes, God wanted to put it in there um, for this reason and that, then you're in grave danger of making God the author of evil. And it's quite clear in several passages of Scripture that is simply not how it is, but that in the mysterious way that God has made his world and the mysterious way that he's made human beings to be his agents in the world, to look after his world for him, giving humans that responsibility has resulted in large scale, multiple extraordinary things happening, which we look at and grieve. And in Genesis 5 and 6, when we see the, the background of the story of Noah, it says that God himself is grieved to his heart by what happens in his world. And so somehow already in the early chapters of Genesis, there is a sense that there is some force which is launched in the world, which because of the way God has made the world, he can't immediately say, oh, we must just stop that quickly. But God has allowed this to happen in ways that we don't understand, that I don't understand. I, I don't know any theologians who understand that. The biblical story, however, is of then God in his love calling a people, the family of Abraham, shaping that people to be the people who knew that it was their vocation somehow to be the means of sorting out the problem of the world. And then as the climax of the story of that people, sending Jesus, his own son, that was the plan from the beginning. That, that, that the second person of the Trinity in technical language would come and would take the full weight of that evil upon himself in his own suffering and death. Um, that That isn't an explanation, and I don't want to give an explanation, because as I say, if you provide a rational shape for the whole thing, you make God the author of 
a pretty appalling mess. And I think the whole Bible rebels against that. But I want to thank your eight-year-old theologian because that was a great question. <laughs> That's great. Marianne or Angie? Okay, I, I love what you had to say about the importance of lamenting during this time of global pandemic. And I think one of the things that, I, that we see or we're experiencing in our generation is that even as believers, we're a generation of people who do everything to keep from feeling the pain of grief. We anesthetize pain with all kinds of, of practices. And so I guess my question is, as pastors or as Christ followers, what does it look like to really live into this idea of lamenting and not continually trying to escape pain or rationalize what's happening in our world or have answers? What does it really look like to, to, to enter into this, this spirit of lament and to, to live in that place for a season of time so we can be healthy in our relationship with God? Yeah, that, that, that's another great question. Um, and I think the short answer would be that, uh, the Psalms, the biblical Psalms are the, the prayer book of Jesus and they are given to us. And the church in every generation has actually known this to be our vehicle of lament. And I pray through the Psalms day by day. And one of the things that I'm really missing at the moment because there aren't any church services is the singing of the Psalms. And to hear a, a, a good choir singing the Psalms and to join in with them again and again, you run into Psalm 22, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? You run into Psalm 44, which I'll be talking a bit about in the second session. You run into Psalm 88, which is one of the darkest moments in the whole Bible. And even if you're not feeling like lamenting yourself at the time, you will sure as anything know somebody uh, as a pastor, but also people that you'll have seen on television who are suffering from floods or famines or whatever it is. And now, of course, people suffering from terrible diseases. And you will be able to live through that psalm, thinking of them and holding them in love in the presence of God, realizing, and I think particularly not only of Psalm 88, Psalm 89, which begins with everything going fine, and then suddenly in the middle of the psalm, everything goes horribly wrong. Uh, and, and there is no resolution at the end of that psalm. The psalmist just leaves the question in the presence of God. And it's only when you feel the power of that as a poem, as a song, and are prepared to stay with it. And as I say, to hold in your mind prayerfully, and maybe to do this as an exercise with a group or a congregation, to hold in mind the people you know for whom you want to pray that prayer at the time. Now, that's one way through. Uh, as I said before, the Book of Lamentations is enormously helpful um, because it, it, it basically, it's a fascinating book. It basically says everything is about as bad as it could possibly be. And it's just terrible, verse after verse, and people are dying at the on the street corners, and the famine, and and uh, you know, little children and mothers, and everything is horrible. But the the poetry of that of that book is extraordinary because it, it it's framed by the Hebrew alphabet. Every verse starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then the pattern repeats, and then again. And it's a way of saying. I am describing what I'm seeing and it is appalling, but somehow through clenched teeth, I'm going to hold on to the belief that God is God, the world is God's world, and even though I can't see how it is, I believe that there is a pattern somewhere. So teaching people how to use scriptural resources like that is really, really helpful. In my tradition, again, the way we keep Lent is often by meditating on the passion and uh, the, the, the story of Jesus going to the cross 
And uh, one of the things I often do, and I did last Sunday, Palm Sunday, was I sat down, couldn't go to church. So having said my own prayers in the morning, I listened to a recording of J.S. Bach's St. John Passion. And the St. John Passion and the St. Matthew Passion are recognized pretty much worldwide, I think, as kind of universally relevant. Even people with no Christian faith can be caught up with that narrative And then they find that their pain and their sorrow and their sense of betrayal and denial and all the rest of it are somehow contained within that story. And if that story leads them to the foot of the cross, then that's a great place to be. That is the place of lament. And as I said before, not a place to hurry through. Now, of course, we don't like pain. Um, we, we, I mean, none of us like pain, whether it's going to the dentist or, or the, the awful pain of being bereaved or whatever. But the Bible gives us these amazing restore, resources because these are the gospel resources. God himself has come to the place of pain and we need to stay there with him. That is uh, so, so beautiful. Thank you so much for answering that question. As I'm reflecting and listening um, you mentioned um, Jesus washing the disciples' feet and calling us to be agents of peace and symbols and signs of the new creation. Uh, you even mentioned historically um, Christians putting themselves in, in harm's way. But in light of this pandemic and us being quarantined, how do we as pastors um, lead our people into new creative ways to serve our neighbors without being reckless and um and foolish yeah that that's that's a great question again and uh, somebody sent me on the email um a week or so ago a long quote by martin luther from 500 years ago who was faced with exactly this question i think it was in 1523 something like that you'd find it online where he goes through quite sensitively as a pastor and theologian about how, of course, one must not be reckless and foolish, and of course, one must take every uh, precaution not to infect other people or to do things rashly which would spread the disease, especially because um, we don't know exactly how this present disease is being spread, but they knew a lot less 500 years ago. But then he says that, of course, if there is pastoral need, if there are things that we can and should do for our neighbors, then we can and should do those things. And I think we're all struggling to figure out exactly what that means in a world where we're being told, certainly in Britain, we should stay two meters away from everybody else except the people that we actually live with in our own houses and homes. So when we go to the store, we we keep distance and we use credit cards rather than cash and so on. So that is really difficult as a pastor. Um, you know, I, I'm facing this with uh, a friend of mine was very ill with this in hospital um, two weeks ago, and we were seriously worried that he might not make it. In fact, thank the Lord he did. But uh, we weren't allowed to go and see him. Um, and uh, his own wife was not allowed to go and see him. Um, one of my children is showing some symptoms at the moment. If she gets taken into hospital, I won't be allowed to go and see her. Um, and I understand that. But, but this, this is a call, I suppose, for the congregation, presumably linked electronically, to get together as best they can and to pray for that person. And maybe just thinking aloud about this, if we have an e-group of people to light a candle in each bit of that, each electronic bit of that group, to name the person in the presence of the Lord, to read one of the Psalms, whatever it is, to read through 
um, one of the great healing stories. I was praying for somebody the other morning, and it just so happened that my reading that morning, the gospel reading was Jesus healing Jairus's daughter, and I was able to pray through that story, thinking of the young woman that I that I had in my heart um, in terms of that story. Th- these are simple and obvious things, and maybe there is more, but, but this, is, this is really difficult. I thank the Lord for the Internet. As many times I've wondered if the Internet was actually um, not such a good thing after all, but it really is great at a time like this. There are many congregations that would otherwise be totally lost off who are able now to, uh, to, to, to connect. So these are just the beginnings of ways, but um, maybe other people have other ideas. It's a really tough time. Thank you for your answers to those. We are going to move to our break now. Um, okay. I'm not sure what all that entails, but we're going to, we have more questions that have been coming in. Obviously, some are too big for us to have time to. But we're going to take a break and then we'll go into the, the second round of uh, your sharing and then we'll have some more time for Q&A. Thanks for listening to part one of this talk by N.T. Wright. In this next session, Tom, can I call him Tom? Dives right into Romans 8. So go listen right now with the Together PDX podcast.